0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement.
1: From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. This week, some states started lifting orders for physical distancing. Today in Georgia, gyms, tattoo parlors and hair salons are open for business again. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said the Sunshine State is a safe place to visit.
2: A lot of the things we offer, you know, it's more of the outdoors and the sunshine. And um, and I think that that's just a better environment uh, to, to be in.
1: But Dr. Anthony Fauci of the White House COVID Task Force warned governors and especially Georgia's Brian Kemp that lifting restrictions too fast could be a deadly mistake.
3: Well, you know, if I were advising the governor, I would tell him that he should be careful and I would advise him not to just turn the switch on and go because there is a danger of a rebound.
1: It's our week in the news. Joining me from Washington is Weijia Zhang. She is White House correspondent for CBS News. Weijia, great to have you.
4: Thanks for having me, Jane.
1: Joining us from Atlanta is Greg Bluestein. He covers politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, nice to have you. Jane, thanks for having me as well. Thank you. And from New York, Charlotte Howard. She's New York Bureau Chief and Energy and Commodities Editor for The Economist magazine and host of the podcast Checks and Balance. Charlotte, uh, great to have you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we'll start here with uh, some states uh, lifting stay-at-home orders starting to open for business. Here is Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announcing he'd be lifting the restrictions as of today in his state. That's Friday. He took a lot of heat for this from, among others, the mayor of Atlanta. Here is Governor Kemp on Fox News.
5: You know, it's a tough balance, and I understand where. Folks like the mayor and and others may agree or disagree. i got some people that are protesting me because I took this step, and I may have others that protest me because I didn't go far enough. Yeah,
1: I understand. But what
5: we've been doing, you know, Martha, and I'd like to just explain, too, you know, we took measured steps to get to the shelter-in-place, and now we're taking measured steps to come out of that. This is not a giant leap forward.
1: Greg Blustein, let's start with you. This all begins where you are. Gyms, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, nail salons all will reopen today. And theaters and dine-in restaurants and social clubs can reopen on Monday. How are people gearing up for all of this, Greg?
2: Well, a lot of them are gearing up by not reopening. Um, a lot of them have already made the decision that they're going to wait for more guidelines. They're going to wait for coronavirus pandemic to start to subside a little bit more. But the governor's order cleared the way for, for them to have the choice to do so. And I was out in a more rural part of the state in in central Georgia um, yesterday, and there they are rolling out the red carpet for this. Their barber shops are getting ready. They're, they're telling folks to to line up in their cars. They're closing down waiting areas to try to you know get get more socially distanced. But they're making s- strong steps to 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 start uh, rolling back these restrictions. Um, the governor has, has been caught in a bind at this point because both President Trump and Georgia Democrats have roundly criticized him for this measure. Um, he thought he was sort of in line with the president's thinking. Uh, a president who j- just a few days ago uh, tweeted about liberating states from, from strong coronavirus restrictions. And now he's on the other end of that that argument with the president saying um, uh, as Thursday briefing that he wasn't at all happy with Governor Kemp.
1: Let's play some of that sound. Here's the president saying that he thought Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is wrong to be lifting his shelter-in-place order.
2: I think it's too soon. And I love the people. I love, I love those people that use all of those things, the spas and the beauty parlors and Barber shops, tattoo parlors, I love them, but they can wait a little bit longer, just a little bit, not, not much, because safety has to predominate. We have to have that. So uh, I told the governor
1: very simply that I disagree with his decision, but he has to do what he thinks is right. All of that after the president had tweeted on Friday, liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia. Reporters asked him why he did that. Here's how he responded. If you take a look at what's going on in Virginia, they want to take away Second
2: Amendment rights, and that's what they want to do. So when you talk about liberate or if you talk about liberation, you could certainly look at Virginia as one.
1: Ji Zhang, help us understand all of this here. The president seems to be giving a couple of different messages. He now disagrees that Georgia is opening after he suggested that these states should be liberated. What do you see here?
4: Well, I think he is clearly torn, right? He has this inclination to want to turn on the entire country as soon as possible. But he's also surrounded uh, with public health experts who are urging him uh, to to use these federal guidelines that he himself rolled out for these states. And so I think that on the one hand, when he wants to encourage people to support his um, very clear view that people should get back to work, he has to be careful about that because he understands there are potential consequences. And I think the problem is that um, even though he continues to say he's not happy with what Governor Kemp has done and that he strongly disagrees, Um, he hasn't done anything about it. Uh, He hasn't offered us any details about their conversation. Did he try to convince the governor to reverse his decision? What other uh, elements is he asking him to do as a precaution? And so it kind of puts the president in this box where, um, you know, he has two very differing um, thoughts that are, 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 playing out in real time. And that's why we are seeing so many contradictions.
1: And Georgia is not the only one to be opening up here. Uh, Greg Bluestein, governors in Tennessee and Ohio and Colorado have all indicated that they would extend Uh, these stay-at-home orders, they would not extend them. Uh, They expire next week. South Carolina, too, is opening retail shops. In Florida, uh, beaches are once again open, open for business. Governor DeSantis stressed the importance of getting people back to work. It's really uncharted territory, right, Greg? You're there in the South. I mean, what's the feeling? What's the response? These are competing tensions, as we just responded to.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've heard the saying, the cure is worse
1: than the disease. And that's that's what that's what some of these policy
2: figures are worried about is that, um, you know, job uh, w- one in about five Georgians now, have p- Georgia workers have now filed for unemployment. Um, and so the worry is that, uh, as the governor here in Georgia has, has said, that uh, the long term repercussions of, of, of watching people whose businesses who have spent decades building a business is lose it all um, is starting to, to weigh heavily on him. At the same time, public health experts say that these states, Georgia included, are nowhere near ready to start reopening and lifting some of these restrictions. Testing remains far, far behind. And, and so do uh, and coronavirus cases uh, are, are starting to just
1: continue to increase. Well, in fact, in Georgia, several models show it won't hit its peak number of daily deaths until April 29.
2: You got it. Um, and, and some of those models say that limits shouldn't start being lifted until mid-June. Um, the governor says that here in Georgia says that um, that his his pu- public health experts say that we're on track, that Georgia is on track, um, but you know every projection <laughs> there, there's a sort of counter to it, and I, I think the strongest condemnations have really come from President Trump's White House health experts. Doctor Deborah burks Fa- Doctor Fauci, have both warned the governor not to take these steps, saying that it's too soon. Um, Fa- Doctor Fauci even said that he, he's concerned that about a leapfrogging effect. Would would lead to greater outbreaks,
1: and so Weijiazhang, you know, Georgia's governor uh, Brian Kemp and some of the other governors seem to be taking their cues in the beginning from the president about how to deal with this virus. But then the messages got to be contradictory, and I'm just curious what you're seeing up there, what you're hearing. Are they listening to the health experts? Are they listening to the president? I mean, what's the, what are the conversations that you're that you're hearing?
4: Well, it seems like they're. Yeah arguing. They have their own stats. They're looking at their uh, states and and different jurisdictions uh, to to make these decisions. But the fact is there are federal guidelines. I will say they're not that specific because the president has made clear that the burden is on each governor and each state to decide when is the best time to open. But the criteria are pretty clear. And And, you know, the main thing um, that at least Governor Kemp does not seem to be following is that there's a a threshold for when you are supposed to ease into reopening. And there should be two weeks of a downward spike in cases, at least before you can really start to address some of these businesses that he's already giving permission to open. And so um, I think the problem is that, Those guidelines are there for a reason, and they have been put together by these experts, Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Birx, based on their modeling and what they've seen. And so it's hard to argue that, you know, your state uh, figures you know, are somehow different from what they are seeing in making these decisions. Here's
1: Atlanta hairstylist Shamika Lockett. She spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. She said no matter what the governor of Georgia says, she will not risk opening up her salon.
5: You can always pick yourself up. I've had to start from scratch at least two or three times in my life. Each time was better than the last.
1: But you cannot come back from death. Charlotte Howard, um, the economics of this are are hard. Obviously, people want to get back to work. They're hurting. Uh, They need to put food on the table. And yet there's a pandemic out there.
5: It's really striking. If you look at the polling on this, it actually contradicts some of what we've been hearing from the president when he's encouraging protesters to come out. Those protesters are really a minority of the population. Um, There was a CBS poll published percent of people think that the country's top priority should be slowing the spread of COVID.
1: You broke up. What was the percentage?
5: 70%.
1: Sorry, one more time?
5: 70%.
1: 70%. Okay.
5: Yeah. Said that the his top priority should be to stay home and try to slow the spread of COVID, even if the economy is hurt in the short term. And that has... Uh, a really big impact, I think, when you look at these different states and you try to weigh this trade off between opening the economy and getting people back to work while also keeping people safe. And you see that tension in the president's rhetoric, where he wants to claim a lot of authority over the situation, but he's a bit worried about taking responsibility for it.
1: It is tension, Ouija, but it also sends mi- mixed messages, doesn't it?
4: Of course it does. And the problem is that the president often has evolving views. Um, and in this case, you know, who could forget when he said he would have the absolute authority to decide when to reopen the country. And then just a few days later said it would actually be up to the governors to call the shots. Um perhaps because he realized that if it were solely up to him, there would be a lot of potential um, accountability in the future. And so that's just one of many examples where he uh, starts off saying one thing and then changes his mind, which offers a lot of confusion for the American public.
1: Weijia Zhang, Greg Bluestein, Charlotte Howard. Stick with me. We're discussing the week in the news. Up next, oil prices, the federal budget in the covid economy and these stunning unemployment numbers. We'll get to that after the break. I'm Jane Clayson. and this is On Point. We'll be right back.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com onpoint on point. That's indeed.com onpoint on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
2: ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains.
3: The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions— And explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at IBMS.bu.edu.
1: This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're talking about the week in the news with a terrific panel. My guest, Weijia Zhang, White House correspondent for CBS News, Greg Bluestein, politics reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Charlotte Howard, New York bureau chief and energy and commodities editor for The Economist magazine. Let's get right to these unemployment numbers. New unemployment numbers for the last week show about 4.4 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits. That means that in the past five weeks, a staggering 26.5 million American workers have filed jobless claims. We've now wiped out all of the jobs created after the Great Recession. Charlotte Howard, it's just stunning. Every week we say, unprecedented, it can't get any worse. And uh, and yet it does, Charlotte. What are you seeing in these numbers?
5: Well, it has been just an astonishing plunge. If you think about a decade worth of jobs gone in five weeks, it's really... Without compare. Um, some are saying now that the April unemployment rate could be up to fifteen percent. Before this, there we were at a historic low. New jobless claims were almost at a 50 year low, uh, but this increase has been has been really astonishing. And you've seen some of the early job losses which were in restaurants, bars, different parts of the hospitality industry, which you might expect spreading to other areas across the economy. White collar workers, sales associates, people working for law
1: firms, even healthcare workers, as I
5: know this show has covered. So it's really pain that is felt broadly across the economy.
1: Congress has uh, passed a $484 billion dollar relief package weizhang um it would have revived this depleted loan program for small businesses it only took about 13 days to exhaust the original 350 billion in that fund so many companies companies are vying for this money tell us um sort of how it's looking how do, how long does it feel like this money will last Ouija?
4: It's probably already spoken for, honestly, because you had so many businesses um, that were not able uh, to get approval of their loans the first time around. We know from the SBA that there are massive backlogs, and we know that many businesses um, still don't even know the status of their application. And I think the other important point here is that for those who have been approved, according uh, to NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, we've talked to them and they're telling us that only about 20% of businesses have gotten any money. All that to say that, you know, for those who are waiting around the first time, they'll be first uh, in line for this second round of money. And we know how quickly it, it, you know, is distributed. And so the the question is, what is the president's cap here? Uh, Will he continue to ask Congress to replenish that fund? And will it be enough? What is the cap, Charlotte Howard? What are you hearing?
5: Well, this does include a, a big increase, as we just heard. I think there's a lot of focus to sustain support for this program going forward. There's a lot of focus on making sure it goes to the right companies. So as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Shake Shack returned a $10 million loan. This is a very large company. Uh, Ruth's Chris House, Ruth Chris Steakhouse. There are parts of this loan program that have gone to very big businesses. And that has not sat well with those who thought this was supposed to be a support for small companies. Let me play that clip
1: of the Shake Shack CEO, Randy Garudi. Here he is on CNN on Monday explaining why his restaurant chain applied for and then got a $10 million emergency loan from the federal government and then why he decided to return it.
2: This opportunity came uh, on its face, appeared to be a great opportunity for companies like us and big and small um, but I think what played out over this last couple of weeks is you started to hear these stories that the very people, the small businesses, our friends who own small restaurants, couldn't get access to this capital and they were in line or their banks couldn't get it done. That doesn't seem right to us.
1: It didn't seem right to a lot of people, Charlotte Howard. I mean, these large companies getting a lot of money, the smaller mom and pops with the eight or 10 or 20 employees. Um, getting nothing.
5: Yeah. I mean, you think about the business community as kind of a monolith, but of course it's not. There are really enormous companies that are very well capitalized. And then there are small little companies that, according to the Chamber of Commerce, about half of the small businesses think they're eight weeks or so away from closing for good. So you have this tension within the business world. And it's a question of the federal government directing money to those who may need it most. And there is, I think, an increased push for transparency. The Fed yesterday was saying it was going to be disclosing names of some of those receiving loans going forward. But you see different companies navigating this in different ways. And the political support for that aid uh, varies quite dramatically, depending on what type of company you're talking about.
1: Greg Bluestein, what are you seeing in the South where you are small businesses who are coming up short in these loan programs?
2: Yeah, it's hard to understate the the frustration, um, especially for those small businesses that that didn't have you know the the lawyers or the time to to work through some of the paperwork. I've talked to many business owners that you know that felt like they should they could wait for a few days to file for these loans and and miss the boat. And also, state state officials um, across the south are worried that that all these latest figures um, don't capture the full extent of, of the layoffs the, uh, of the economic turmoil because. The flood of these claims has overwhelmed state agencies who are handling them. So they're worried that that there's a fresh surge of claims in in the next few weeks um, that will further inundate the system.
1: So, Weijia Zhang, what's the remedy for these inequalities um, moving forward?
4: Well, we know in the latest round of funding, there is a set of money set aside just for smaller lenders and banks. The president has said that he has asked larger corporations to return the money um, if they received it during the first round. He mentioned um, some educational institutions like Harvard, for example. But um, we, we need to know more about the safeguards that are in place and the criteria because he hasn't specified exactly what that means. Obviously, a lot of publicly traded companies um, are receiving some of these loans. And it's also up to the banks because, um, you know, as we know, there are lawsuits against some of these big banks because they have their own motivations as well. And when you give out bigger loans, you can rake in bigger fees. And so that's another part of this. Um, But I don't know what the long term remedy is because uh, there seems to be so many glitches within the program that they're trying to sort out in Real time. And, you know, that's unfortunate because the administration promoted this as something that was going to be so quick, so fast, and get to the small businesses that need it the most first. And we're just not seeing that happen. Hmm.
1: And as I read about uh, lawmakers looking at another possible trillion dollars or more to pump into the economy, I I have to come to this striking piece that I read this week in The Washington Post, Charlotte Howard. The federal government is on its way this year to spending $4 trillion more than it collects in revenue as we're trying, of course, to offset the economic damage from this pandemic. Um, you know, business borrowing, we're setting records here. The budget deficit is roughly twice as large relative to any economy in any year since 1945. I mean, the reliance on debt is going to leave scars long after this pandemic passes, Charlotte.
5: That's what we take on in this week's cover story in The Economist. But yes, this is a problem both within the United States and really around the world. I mean, the IMF says that rich world government debt could rise to 122% of GDP. That's Incredibly striking. The good news is that interest rates are low, and no one is really arguing that we shouldn't have big government spending right now. I mean, this is the time to have a fiscal stimulus. And if you think about the ways that the government usually tries to get an economy going, you lower interest rates or you try to spur economic activity to get people out shopping. Those don't work right now because interest rates are already low. People aren't going to start, you know going to movies immediately and spending lots on restaurants immediately. So those traditional levers that a government would pull are low, um, are, are, are not as effective this time around. And so there is this, you see this playing out where there's a need for enormous amounts of assistance to small businesses. But in reality, that may not work as well as you might want it to. But Largely, the need for the government to be taking action is 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 not really controversial. The question is what comes later. When the economy does recover, will the government be able to not have uh, as big spending increases? Will it be able to raise taxes? Um, we argue with economists that you could think about raising taxes in sensible ways to deal with inequality and climate change once the economy does recover. So, for instance taxing carbon emissions or taxing inheritance but these have not been things that have been particularly particularly popular to date mm.
1: So with all that as a backdrop, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made news this week when he said that states who have been hard hit by the coronavirus should be allowed to seek bankruptcy protections rather than be given a federal bailout. Here he is on The Hugh Hewitt Show on Wednesday. He said Republicans are not interested in bailing out state pension funds by borrowing against the future and that if necessary, states should declare bankruptcy.
5: I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy uh, uh, route. It saved some cities, and there's no good reason for it not to be available. Uh, my guess is their first choice would be for the federal government to borrow money from future generations to send it down to them now so they don't have to do that. Uh, that's not something
4: I'm going to be in favor of.
1: Wee Leader McConnell is on a, under a lot of pressure from his right flank. It's just not conservative, all these bailouts, right?
4: Sure. But at the same time, the president has addressed this and he says at this point they have no choice um, because, you know, the economy is uh, absolutely ravaged. And the president has uh, been asked about this particular idea from the Senate leader many times now in the briefing room. And he says he's open to it. He says he will continue uh, to talk to senators about it. And he's really kind of hesitating to offer his a uh, full view about whether, you know, declaring bankruptcy should be on the table. Greg
1: Bluestein, many states um, like yours are making a big push for help from Washington to cover, you know, their lost tax revenue to cover a lot of these money issues, money problems related to the pandemic. What are you seeing where you are in Georgia?
2: Um, this is a bipartisan push, which makes it all the more interesting. In Georgia, lawmakers uh, indefinitely suspended the legislative session in the middle of the pandemic, so haven't passed a budget yet for the next uh, fiscal year. Um, when they do come back, likely in June, uh, it looks like there'll be a two or three billion dollar hole at least in Georgia's budget. So you you've seen g- Republican governors from around the South say the same thing that Democratic governors in the Northeast are saying. They're they're asking for for basically block funding. For, for, for you know, a huge infusion of money to keep their essential state services running amid this crisis.
1: Mm. Um, let me get to oil prices uh, as we're talking about the economy here, because, of course, the coronavirus has kneecapped uh, the U.S. economy. The oil industry has lived through many booms and busts, Charlotte Howard, but never before have oil prices collapsed as they did this week. On Monday, prices fell below zero, meaning some traders had to pay others to take crude oil off of their hands uh what are you seeing here in the in the oil industry
5: it's been a remarkable implosion in oil prices since the beginning of march and it's something that uh is a new experience for america so america historically we've thought about america america trying to be energy independent trying to become less dependent on middle east oil in 2018 america became the world's biggest producer of crude uh that's because of this enormous shale boom in Texas, North Dakota, else so now, um, where previously low oil prices would have been a boon to consumers, you know you have cheaper gas uh, airplane flights might be cheaper now they're big parts of the economy that uh in certain states that are dependent on oil and gas, and so what you saw this week was really kind of global phenomena of there being too much oil around and not enough demand for it as people staying home, coinciding with some idiosyncratic things in Texas where there isn't enough uh, room in in a certain hub in Oklahoma to store oil. And that's why uh, people saw prices rise, uh, sink below negative on Monday. But you still have this bigger problem, which is that oil is going to have this rocky ride because you still have supply exceeding demand. And uh, Trump can't actually do that much about it. You hear him weighing a variety of different measures. Most of those need congressional approval. Um, He earlier tried to have America buy crude to put in its strategic oil reserves, which are these big caverns along the coast of Texas and Louisiana. Congress didn't give approval for that but I do think this plays politically for him well. I mean, if you think about how central coal was in 2016 and how well that played for him, coal's a much smaller industry and it's in less crucial electoral states. Um, Hmm. Shale oil and gas is in Texas. It's in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And so both you can be seen as defending those industries in key states. And also you can play into this sort of idea of Trump defending American energy independence, which itself is sort of a fallacy. But uh, I think it will play well politically.
1: And so do you agree with that, We Zhang? Uh, I mean, I'm seeing signs for 97 cent uh, gallon of gas. Uh, how does that play politically for the president?
4: Uh, I think Charlotte's absolutely right. But the problem is that, you know, he doesn't have a lot of things he can do to match what he is saying, uh, as she also pointed out. I mean, he um, he said nobody's ever heard of negative oil before. And the way that he treated this was a- as a phenomenon as he should. But, um, you know, even he recognizes that he has to ask Congress for permission. Uh, he has said that people store oil. Um, and so, you know, I think, Eventually, uh, he's going to have to show how when he makes these um, I, uh, promises and, and suggestions of how he plans to um, tackle this. He, he has to do something about it, and so far hasn't. Mm-hmm.
1: Let me before the break here get to something that President Trump said at a at the press briefing, the White House press briefing yesterday. Um, the president uh, started well um, riffing about ways he thought that the coronavirus could be treated, um, how it could be taken cleared from the human body, and I wanted to play this because it's gotten a lot of uh, talk. Um, Here he is. Uh, He was asked by Bill Bryan, who leads the Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology Division. He asked him to look into the idea of cleaning the body with light and disinfectant.
2: And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that Uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it... There's a tremendous number. Of logs, so it'd be interesting to check
1: that. Weijing, um, quick response from this. Uh, the maker of Lysol issued a statement warning against any internal use of its cleaning products. But uh, a lot of people wondering what the president meant by that.
4: Well, the president said that he's not a doctor and he said he is just somebody who has a good you know what. And when he said that, he pointed to his head. So I'm assuming he means this came from him himself, because his public health experts um, were clearly startled. I was sitting in the front row and looked over at Dr. Deborah Burks and the look on her face was just a mixture of complete confusion and almost disbelief. Uh, And so I think this is the president coming up with ideas on his own without anything to back it up and then forcing medical experts and manufacturers of disinfectant to have to issue swift and strong warnings that this is not actually something you should consider doing.
1: We are talking about a yet yet another astonishing week in the news. Um, Up next, the president's executive order on immigration, among other things. More to come. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. On Monday, we'll be talking about the world without sports during this coronavirus pandemic. Are you a sports superfan? How are you spending your time without sports? What changes do you think professional sports will have to make to survive all this? We'd love to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. Back to our week in the news. My guests this hour, terrific panel, Wu Zhang, White House correspondent for CBS News, Greg Bluestein, politi- uh, pol- uh, politics reporter for the Atlanta journal-, Atlanta journal Constitution, and Charlotte Howard, New York bureau chief and energy and commodities editor for The Economist magazine. Before the break, we played uh, President Trump's thoughts on coronavirus treatments. There were other back and forth uh, discussions that are worth noting this week. The director of the CDC warned that a second wave of coronavirus uh, could come this fall and will be much more dire because it's uh, likely to coincide with the start of the flu season. Um, So during Wednesday's press briefing, the president said that it's possible COVID does not come back at all. And so then Dr. Anthony Fauci had to walk that back. Here's that exchange.
3: There will be coronavirus in the fall. If we do, which we won't, but let's take an imaginary period. We say, okay, coronavirus, forget about it. We're not going to do anything about it. It will take off. That's what viruses do. But that's not what's going to happen. We are going to respond to it to not allow it to do that.
1: Wee Dr. Redfield, the director of the CDC, that was Dr. Fauci that you heard just there, both saying that having two simultaneous respiratory outbreaks would put an unimaginable strain on the healthcare system. But they say, you know, it's very possible and probable that that's coming, and the president not really wanting to accept that, I guess. Is that correct?
4: Uh, Absolutely. This all unfolded because Dr. Redfield did an interview in the Washington Post in which he said that the second round of coronavirus could be much more difficult because it will coincide with having to fight the flu. Um, The headline used the word devastating. And that's what really set off President Trump. He almost marched uh, Dr. Redfield out to the podium to have him clarify that that's not what he meant. But in the end, you know, Dr. Redfield said he was correctly quoted in the post. So it was this awkward episode. And even after that, the president wanted to insist that perhaps the virus won't come back in the fall and that there's a chance that it won't. And that's uh, when Dr. Fauci clarified uh, that statement as we just heard. So it's just the latest example of many of President Trump uh, versus his health experts. And it seems that even though uh, the president insists he listens to the science and he listens to those around him, it appears he only listens to those who agree with him. And we've seen this time and time again, where if they don't say the same thing he's saying, they've either had to offer uh, you know explanations or recant their statements. And that causes a lot of confusion for people watching at home um, who, you know, want to listen to the doctors.
1: Which leads us to the story of the top federal vaccine researcher who was dismissed uh, this week, Rick Bright was apparently pushing for a more thorough vetting of hydroxychloroquine. That's the anti-malaria drug that President Trump has repeatedly touted. Apparently, Bright was particularly concerned about the quality of chloroquine that was being shipped in from uh, Pakistan and from India that wasn't approved yet by the FDA. Rick Bright said that the administration put politics and cronyism ahead of science. Weijia, he is now filing a whistleblower report.
4: That's right. And he uh, could not say it in any clearer terms. Dr. Bright believes he was transferred from this very small but critical agency that is developing vaccines to the NIH because of political retaliation. He says he refused to give in to pressure that he felt from the administration to peddle um, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. And he wanted a lot more vigorous vetting of it because he was concerned that it might do harm in addition to any good. And so, as you mentioned, importantly, the president has promoted uh, these drugs from the podium and uh, he refuses to answer questions about Dr. Bright. You know, some of my colleagues have really tried to press him um, about why he was transferred, and the president hasn't offered any explanation.
1: Well, from vaccines to testing, uh, I want to talk about this because governors have really been bringing it up again this week, saying that we need more testing, more testing. The more testing we have, the more possibility of opening the economy. Symptomatic testing, asymptomatic testing, antibody testing, rapid testing. Uh, Greg Blustein, jump back in here. How is testing where you are? What are you seeing in terms of the ability to, to actually get a test?
2: Georgia is in the bottom ranks of testing, um, uh, per capita testing across the nation, which is one of the reasons why uh, experts are so worried about the state's push to reopen phases of the uh, sectors of the economy starting starting today. Um, Georgia doesn't have the, the supplies. They don't have the numbers. Um, there are big increases in testing uh, in, in recent days. That's a sign of good news, but still experts say that, that, we're, that the state's dangerously far behind in terms of testing if they want to phase in parts of the economy. Um, and it only now is starting a, a, a sort of contact tracing program. Um, the, the state announced that a few days ago. That's yet to get off the ground, and there's still many questions about how effective um, that can be without hiring thousands of new employees. Uh, the former director of the CDC said as many as two or 300,000 people would be needed Um, across the nation to do an effective uh, contact tracing program.
1: And talk about the economics of that, Charlotte Howard. I mean, two to three hundred thousand people at the very least just to start.
5: Yeah. I mean, the number of tests is, are really still abysmal. I mean, that number, the daily tests throughout April have averaged about 150,000. If the economy were to fully reopen, according to a recent report from a center within Harvard, America would need about 5 million tests a day by early June. So that's versus 150,000 now. That gives you a sense of the scale of how far we have to go Uh I do think that this is something that is an intention in the guidelines that came from the federal government where they set out these phases that need to occur as the economy opens up. What you really need uh, to have, as everyone knows at this point, is to have testing not just of symptomatic patients but asymptomatic patients as well as, as that contact
4: treatment.
5: So I think that you'll see um, unfortunately, particularly in states that open really quickly, uh, you may you, you may see a resurgence in cases and across the South which is uh, includes a, many states that, that are starting to reopen, you have this confluence of factors that are, are a bit worrisome you know a lack of testing quite lax restrictions as well as um, a lack of access to health insurance in some southern states that refused Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. So all this adds up to something that could, could turn a bit uglier in May or June.
1: Is that what you're seeing, Greg Blistain?
2: Yeah, um, that, that's, that's precisely what we're seeing. Um, the, here in Georgia, um, state health officials have said they want to run out of tests, if only so they could, they could ask for more. Uh, you're still seeing delays you're still seeing problems in getting not just the testing kits itself, but you know the 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 secondary things you need to to, to perform the test, this, certain chemical compounds, nasal swabs, swabs yeah. um, and you're still seeing a problem with with you know the essential life saving gear, PPE, um, surgical masks, and 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 N95s, and and those hospitals are still worried about. Uh, although you know they they've canceled most elective surgeries, and they have the bed capacity, they're worried about staffing and. You know, the doctors and nurses and, and janitorial staffing uh, available to deal with a, a, a possible surge um, if, if there's another outbreak here.
1: Let me turn to immigration uh, for a moment because that came up this week. President Trump said he would sign an executive order to temporarily halt immigration to the U.S. That means no more green cards, though the president backed off on plans to also halt guest worker programs. Uh, Wixi Zhang, the president says the coronavirus justifies this. Critics say the president is using the pandemic to further hardline immigration policies. What do you see here?
4: Well, I see a lack of an explanation um, from the president about exactly how this policy is going to help American workers. And that's the uh, reasoning he's using. He says that he wants to halt um, people from coming here because he wants to Cut back on the amount of competition in the workforce for Americans who are now looking for a new job, given the uh, you know terrible unemployment uh, numbers that we are seeing. But he has not provided any specifics about what sectors he's talking about, how many jobs are we talking about, and you know how this will really help the economy. His own economic policy. Um, advisor, Kevin Hassett, actually told us here at the White House that he does not believe this is going to be economically significant in the short run because there's already essentially no movement. There's already uh, restrictions on travel. We know that both borders are closed to non-essential travel. And so um, I think we really need to hear from the president why he thinks This is going to make an impact on the economy. And if he can't provide that, you know, it it lends more credibility to these uh, criticisms that it's actually just an excuse to halt legal immigration, which, by the way, was one of his campaign promises.
1: Charlotte Howard, how do you see it?
5: I think this is a pretty interesting example. I mean, the idea that there'd be a rationale, I think, is reasonable in this environment almost misses the point in that there are certain times when the president makes a pronouncement that plays politically well. You know, I agree with everything that was just said, um, but that immigration is something that, you know, fires up his base and gets people enthusiastic about him. And at the beginning of this crisis, you saw a quite remarkable degree of bipartisanship in the passage of the first uh, uh, the first package of aid. But as the crisis moves on, people get a little bit tired about COVID news. Um, Attention starts to turn back to the election over the summer. I think that you'll see the response to this crisis, which will remain a very real health crisis, become more political. And this is an instance that gives a taste of what's to come.
1: Uh, Let me ask you about the, um, the president's comments this week, actually on Twitter. Uh, that he has given orders for the Navy to, quote, shoot down and destroy any Iranian gunboats found to be harassing U.S. ships. Weijia Zhang, uh, what's the significance of that?
4: Well, you know, this isn't the first time the President has issued similar threats to Iran, and we know it came after uh, the Navy reported that there were vessels that were threatening American ships in the Persian Gulf. but um, the President on that tweet did not specify what you know he was uh, referring to. That's only something we can assume um, but I think you know he he tweets something and then he doesn't provide any details about what this means for the Navy, whether it changes um, their rules of engagement and their protocols. So I I think what we're seeing is another round of uh, warning to Iran. But the fact that he has to do it shows that, you know, the ones issued before are not exactly acting as a deterrent. And we can't forget the context behind all of this, which is, Um, you know, a years-long buildup of tension between these two countries after the president took office and most recently after, uh, you know, taking out one of uh, their most revered generals um, that even his own um, lawmakers in Congress have questioned. So I, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions with regard to that tweet, and that's the problem when you conduct foreign policy on social media.
1: Just a couple minutes left here. I want to finish up with a round robin, each of you giving us a sense of what you're looking at uh, on the horizon. Uh, what are you looking at for news this week specifically? Uh, Greg Bluestein, we'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I have to go local and, and how Georgia has become the litmus test for easing coronavirus restrictions around the nation, whether the state wants to be or not, all eyes will be on Georgia. Um, over the next couple of days, as, as the first round of businesses start to reopen, many will stay closed, but a handful are going to reopen, especially um, further out outside the metro Atlanta area. Um, and we'll see how those restrictions, uh, you know, start to start to ease. But um, we'll also see if we start, you know, in a few weeks, if there's any repercussions in terms of uh, further outbreaks from those, and that's that's the fear that everyone here has.
5: Charlotte Howard. I I have to look be, beyond our borders actually. The situation in Iran is a good reminder of broader instability caused by that existed obviously prior to this crisis and has been exact um this is particularly world that depend on oil, not just Iran which was already in an immensely pressured situation from american sanctions and the trump administration had given has really given it no clear way out which is why you see this bubbling up of violence um, periodically and the question has always been when it will really escalate and bubble over but also in iraq which is a has become a huge oil producer had really seen production ramp up um but now it's dropping there's there's instability there allies in the region. Saudi Arabia is under enormous strain. It requires an oil price of about $80 to balance its budget. Um, we're a fraction of that now. And so you see, uh, you, you see a volatile area of the world that's under a lot of pressure. Mm. And it's not really clear what America's standing is in this crisis, what the Trump administration is and isn't willing to do on the global stage. So I'm watching that.
4: We should hang about 20 seconds. Um, I will continue to watch what the administration is doing to help states uh, that are eyeing uh, reopenings, specifically with regard to testing, because governors are still begging for help getting these supplies that they cannot. And the president has been hesitant um, to use his full authority to get the supplies needed to actually conduct the test. And we know that widespread testing is the key to getting back to some sort of normalcy and reopening these economies. That is the key.
1: It is the key to everything. Um, thank you all so much. I wanted to play this last clip uh, End today with a bit of good news, some good news. Many Americans have found actor John Krasinski's online hit. It's called SGN, stands for Some Good News, Millions of Views. Here's a clip from this week's edition. He held a virtual prom for all the country's high school seniors who will miss theirs this year. Billie Eilish, uh, the Jonas Brothers, Chance the Rapper, Brad Pitt. Uh, here he is. Here's how we wrapped it up.
3: I didn't know what we were in for. I didn't know if any of my friends would show up, but they all did. And guess what, guys? I have to be honest, they did not show up for me. They showed up all for you, and I really need you to know that. We are all going through this together. This is a very, very weird time, but each and every one of you are missing something, and this is the least I could do, and <laughs> I and I couldn't be more proud to do it. So, thank you all for coming. <laughs>
1: Just a reminder that a lot of people um, are going through a lot including our kids uh, who are who are suffering through this as well um, thanks panel really appreciate your time your expertise Ouija Zhang, for CBS News Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal Constitution and Charlotte Howard really appreciate it and to all of you listeners thank you have a good weekend I'm Jane Clayson this is on point
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
2: ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balanced scorecard did something similar. Questrom's
3: Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions... And explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind
0: of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at IBMS.bu.edu.